So, okay, here we are at uh, the next edition of the Austrian AV Club. I'm Redmond Weisenberger, the head of the uh, founding director of the Ludwig von Mises Institute of Canada. And I'm speaking today with uh, Stefan Kinsella, uh, libertarian, anarchist, anarcho-capitalist about town, um, focused uh, on intellectual property and the, uh, or I should say the, uh, what would you say the how do, so if intellectual property doesn't exist what do we say you're not you're not really focused on intellectual property because it doesn't exist that's like saying you're focused on dragons you know like what do you think intellectual monopoly <laughs> intellectual privilege <laughs> i mean there's you know, imaginary property <laughs> yeah yeah you call it so and you're um and you are the um you're the head right now. I guess your main website, like what do you do as a day job? You sort of, you, I know you, you were a lawyer and you worked on intellectual property uh, issues for a very long time. Yes, I'm a patent attorney and I have my own law firm now and I, uh, I focus on IP and corporate law issues. But yeah, I've been a practicing patent and copyright attorney since 1992 or three. So I've done it for quite a while. First at a law firm, at law firms for about 10 years and then like for the last 10 years uh, in-house as general counsel for a high-tech uh, startup company and now I have my own practice. So my day job is practicing law and advising companies on IP issues uh, primarily to help them navigate this horribly confused IP field and to defend themselves from possible suits from competitors. Oh, okay. So what's going on is that because what's I guess sort of what's happening now in uh, I guess what are the latest developments in the in the world of IP because um, I, I know that uh, we've had the situation with with patent trolls I mean I know that goes on um, our company's finding it's a real it's really a detriment to their business are they really finding it's it's hard to navigate is it, it they're spending far too much time they can't innovate because of these issues I, I think that. In a way, it's more of the same. This has been going on for 200 years and maybe escalated in the last 30 or 40 years, the last 10, 15 years, a lot. Um, I do think there's more awareness of the problem with it, but all you get is more of the same utilitarian complaining that the system is broken and we need to fix it. There's, mm -hmm. there's no principled understanding of the fundamental problem with the system. Uh, so, for example, you'll hear complaining about patent trolls or about right. – and a patent troll, by the way, is what we call an NPE, non-practicing entity, as opposed to yeah. a practicing entity, as if as if there's something virtuous about making a product and going to the government and getting a monopoly that you're the only one who can sell it and using the government courts to sue your competitors, as if that's yeah. some ideal that we should be hearkening to and that um, – Actually, ah, okay. You know, so you're saying, yeah, I get what you're saying. I mean, patent, patent trolls are not the problem. In fact, I would prefer patent trolls to non-patent trolls because a patent troll just wants money, right? Mm -hmm. They they're not making anything. They just want to sue you and get you to agree to pay them a dollar per object or per you know per unit sold as as yeah. a cost of doing business. So they're sort of like the mafia in a small neighborhood. Um, okay, uh, but a uh, if you have a competitor who's suing you, like you know, Apple going after Android, vice versa, they mm. actually want to shut you down. They want to use the court to give an injunction to force you to stop making what you're making. So there's no small price you can pay to keep going. They actually want to get the courts to shut you down, which is why, for example, um, the BlackBerry company, um, REM, Research in Motion, 
yeah. which yeah. was sued by NTP, and one of them's Canadian. I think NTP is the Canadian troll, no, no. or maybe maybe Rim's <clears throat> okay. Canadian. Rim is Canadian. Rim is yeah. Canadian. NTP is a patent troll that sued them about five years ago, and because they were threatening to shoot them, shut them down with the power of injunction, uh, BlackBerry had to settle for six hundred and twenty-one million dollars just to keep yeah. making their products. So patent trolls um, are are a problem, but competitors are even bigger problem. Yeah. So, and, and because I've, I mean, I know some of the uh, the history behind IP, but where where was the the first idea of copyright came in when? Well, because this is sort of because the uh, was was the idea of um, of intellectual property did it even exist before um, the printing press? Well, say? you've always had protectionism, right? You've had. Uh, yeah. Uh, you've had this, uh, the crown granting monopolies. I think back in 500-something B.C. In, the, in some Greek city, there was a culinary competition, and the, and the, the local mayor or, or dictator or king, whatever he was, he would award a one-year monopoly to make a certain dish wow. if, you won the, if you won the competition. So there's always been these sort of utilitarian incentives um, that the, the state would grant. Um, to incentivize something, so they're trying to optimize some something about society. So it's just a tweaking of the rules to try to, just like when the tax rules are amended to give a, a home interest deduction, they're trying to encourage people to buy houses. Um, and but I think the modern copyright arose out of in the 1500s, if I get my dates right. right. The Stationers Guild was authorized because of the threat of the printing press. And it had the monopoly on approving which books could be printed, um, okay. and that lasted for I don't know 100, 100 something years. And when the monopoly ran out, then the Stationers Guild and the printers petitioned Parliament to extend their monopoly. But what okay. happened at the time was this mythology of the author's rights had has had arisen, and um, uh, so the Statute of Anne was enacted in 1709. Which gave the copyright to the authors, uh, but of course the system reverted right back to the same old system where you had publishing companies where the authors had to assign their rights to it, and so on. But the the original impetus behind the Stationers Guild and the Statute of Anne was to have state and church control over the dissemination of official and approved thought and printed works. So it was basically mm -hmm. censorship and thought control. Yeah. So that was the origin of copyright was censorship. Yeah, they only they only wanted to allow uh, certain people to publish works, and if they were going to publish works, the the powers that be, the state wanted to say, well, you're not allowed to say this, you're not allowed to say that. Um, yep, I mean yeah, Galileo is a good example. One one reason mm -hmm. one reason that some of the authors were in favor of the new statute of Anne and the new copyright system was. It, it at least uh, on the surface appeared to facially shift the power from the publishers and the crown to the authors. In other words, the mm -hmm. authors were happy to have the copyright so they would be the ones who could control when it was published just to prevent censorship from being imposed on them by the, by the church or the stationers guild or the crown. In other words, the original reason authors liked copyright was they could get their works out there. It wasn't to sue people to stop them from publishing it; it was to prevent people from stopping them from publishing their works. Okay. And now this now, and when you're talking about this, this is sort of more of a British system 
because obviously you had different regimes in France, yeah. Italy. Um, and I understand that uh, for a very long time in what later became Germany, I guess you had these principalities in Germany, they essentially did not have any sort of copyright. Um, at least that's what I understand. I've, I've heard from Jeff Tucker about that. Th that was a little bit later on. There were periods of time um, when, um, uh, say, Switzerland and uh, other – Italy, for example, Switzerland had no patents for a while, at least on pharmaceuticals, and they were like dominating the pharmaceutical business. And in the copyright mm -hmm. field, there were periods of time I – and mean, these are not like five years, like 100-year periods, I think in the 1800s, where um, Germany had very lax copyright laws. And mm -hmm. they were out-competing Britain, which was the center of uh, uh, a lot of the publishing industry at the time in terms of new works, not just knockoffs and, copy and, and uh, pirated works, but new works, etc. So in other words, in, you can find periods in history where IP in terms of patent or copyright are non-existent or very lax in a major industrial country like Italy or Germany or Switzerland or the Netherlands or Germany um, – sorry – and um, and you had a thriving publishing industry or artistic community or pharmaceutical industry or innovation in the terms of industrial technology. Uh, so we just have tons of evidence that you can have a healthy, innovative economy absent patent and copyright. Yeah. So the um, and yeah, and as far as I know, like throughout the 19th century, uh, Germany was known as one of the intellectual centers of the world. Absolutely. Uh, you know, it was one of the intellectual center, centers of the um, of Europe. And you had uh, the musicians there simply just, you know, they would write their works, perform them. Um, and I, I think what's interesting is that <clears throat> now, or I was just, just to cut away a little bit. Now to say, like looking at some practical applications, because I guess oftentimes the argument is that um, people deserve some sort of, uh, you know, some sort of compensation, Yes. you know, for their work. And, and what I think is interesting too, because I think this is where some people get confused about this, because let's say it's, uh, I mean, not today with, uh, with Kindles and whatnot, but let's say 40 years ago, you had a situation where somebody writes a book, but for them to actually sell it, to publish it, you actually needed a, a very large um, uh, capital investment, yes. right? So you would need uh, people who edit it. You need people who typeset it. You need people who um, promote it. You need to ship it around to stores to get yes. to actually sell it. Yes. And and so in what way? So the, the people who are... You know what I think is interesting too about this idea about about the the author and the creator is that when you actually look at businesses like this, the creative part is actually only the very beginning of that process. You know what I mean? And and so I'm wondering if if copyright um, actually you know what is what are the authors getting out of it? Um, where does the where does the person who's uh, publishing it come into play? Are those rights assigned just absent copyright, absent intellectual property? Would those rights be assigned by uh, just simply contracts? So here, here's how I, I think the best way to look at it. We have to realize that we, we're so used to looking at the world using today's modern preconceptions of copyright and patent. This is how we yes. see things. I mean, look, I'm yeah. sure that citizens in the Soviet Union in the 1970s, if you said we're going to abolish communism, some of them would have said, well, who's going to make the toothpaste? And how, yeah. how many brands of toothpaste would there be? 
Um, and let's say let's say the entire world was communist, and you didn't know the answer to that. All you knew that was there was a monopolistic maker of horrible gray toothpaste. Yeah. And you had under economic and political understanding, and you said, I know we have to bust this monopoly of the state. Um, mm -hmm. And someone said, well, how many brands of toothpaste are there going to be? Now, let's say you didn't know the answer to that. Does that mean that you just – that if you can't answer that question, that we have to keep communism? Uh, you know, so uh, my, 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 what I would say is, number one, if we can't predict what the world is going to look like absent IP, it yeah. doesn't mean that it's still just. Um, and if you think about um, the way that a free market economy works, basically people have property rights and physical resources. They, yeah. they compete. They live their lives. And every time you compete or you come up with a new business opportunity, if, you, if you're right and you make a profit, you've identified something in the market that – some need that for this service or good that you've come up with, right? You're going mm -hmm. to make a profit. Now, profit in a sense is an unnatural thing, which is why over time profit tends to decrease to the interest level or to some lower level. And how does it decrease? It decreases because you have competition, which means other people in the market observe what you're doing. They learn from your activities. You send price mm -hmm. signals out into the market. Hey, I'm making a 30% gross margin or 80% gross margin on this endeavor. So people are going to say, hey, Ben & Jerry's ice cream or high-quality coffee stores or – uh, nice uh, bookstores, you know, with wide eye or grocery stores with wide aisles. Whatever the new business and model is, is attracting customers and profit, is satisfying some demand. So some mm -hmm. competitor comes and starts competing with you, and over time, your profit goes down unless you think of a way to keep improving your business. This is the good thing about the market. This is why the free market is always improving, prosperity always increases, and that people ceaselessly try to improve to. For the benefit of consumers, um, so the only difference with uh, entrepreneurial activities that involve easily copyable goods is that it's a little bit easier to compete with you because a, yeah. a more significant fraction of the value you're giving to your customers is some pattern of information like the model of a mouse trap or or oh. uh, the text of a book. That could be more or less easily copied by a new competitor, so they can, they may be able to compete more quickly. You know, if I'm selling a blockbuster movie, I may be able to sell it for eight weeks in the movie theater before someone finally knocks it off and copies it. Let's say in a copyright-free world, and then my profits are going to start dropping unless I come up with some other way to make profit off of this. So, but all that means is that you face competition always, and it's it's a little bit easier for people to compete in certain fields. But that's yeah. not a fundamentally different thing. Now, you asked about um, uh, publishing books and all these things. Look, even under our current system, uh, works that are older than 100-something years old are public domain now, like Aristotle's yeah. uh, Nicomachean Ethics or the works of Shakespeare. Now, even 20 years ago when you had a lot of investment in typesetting and laying out the books and printing a big quantity of books, you didn't have print-on-demand. You didn't have… Uh, easy publishing like we have now, do you think 20 or 30 years ago you could have gone to a bookstore and bought a copy of Shakespeare's <laughs> works? Yes. Absolutely. Why? Absolutely. why is that? Even though Penguin might publish Shakespeare's works, but someone else could knock them off right away. But they yeah. don't because it takes a while to do that. 
and and Penguin might have a, a novel feature like a nice index or maybe a new introduction by a new scholar who's added something of value. So well, and, yeah, and this is this is what I find too the um and what I what I these arguments about things like I find you know because I was involved in sort of the uh, world of industrial design for a very long time right so about seven years I worked in that and you know if somebody is going to compete against Apple and make and make a computer like Apple, you know, or if they're going to compete with Apple, are they actually going to the, go to the trouble to make exactly the same computer as Apple does? You know, I, I think it's, I think it's sort of funny because when they're, when they're talking about copyright and they're talking about um, these patents and things, it seems like they're always trying to grab the, the most vague, yes. broad yeah. spectrum of things because in the reality is, you know, um, when when if somebody's going to go and make shoes there's no reason why they would try to make almost exactly the same shoe as right. nike or the exact same computer as as well, apple in, does in fact, in fact they don't i mean so i would say they don't i mean even when they can i would say two things number one if someone does make the exact same copy there's nothing wrong with that and and you know yeah. i think there's a car manufacturer in china that's being shut down right now that was making perfect copies of um some you know like Lamborghini, Lamborghini? no like a Lamborghini oh. or something. Maybe it was actually I think it was actually in Italy. There was a knockoff company in Italy okay. that was making like for fifteen thousand dollars a perfect replica of a Lamborghini. Now maybe it didn't perform as well, but it looked the same. Now yeah. the customer is not being defrauded. Mm -hmm. Okay, so no one is being physically aggressed against or trespassed against by the sale. The manufacturer selling a product to a willing buyer, he's not being yeah. defrauded. Lamborghini says, you know, you're you're diluting the value of our mark. Well, okay, fine. Um, but I think in general you're right. Uh, I think in a free market you're going to have basically two types of companies. Right. So let's say you have Coca-Cola. Um, you might have an El Cheapo knockoff company that tries to make El Coca-Cola or something, you know, some Chinese version. But, you know, they're going to sell for – 10% of the original price, and everyone is not being defrauded, and the product quality probably won't get, be as good. The reputation won't be as good, and they're not mm -hmm. going to go too far. But if you actually had a company that tried to make a perfect knockoff of Coca-Cola cans or of Mercedes cars to actually mm -hmm. make a product that will not – that will sell for the same price, right? Because if it sells for yeah. cheaper, everyone knows that it's a, it's a knockoff like a $20 Rolex watch. If you're selling a Mercedes, fake Mercedes car at a dealership in Houston, Texas for $75,000 and it's a knockoff, you had to spend a, millions of dollars on engineers and plants. to, And then you're doing all this just so that you can get a big class action fraud suit against you when people realize what you're doing. So it's just not going to happen. Um, oh, yeah, and, yeah, and, and the yeah. truth is that any competitor is going to want their own name on things. Yeah. This is how Audi Audi spun off of Mercedes Benz early on. Everyone wants to. I mean, Wendy's Wendy's hamburgers. Dave Matt Dave whatever his name wanted to put his own name on Wendy's. Burger King calls themselves Burger King, you know. So you have Burger King, Wendy's, mm -hmm. and McDonald's all competing. They don't call themselves the same name. It's it's no more a problem than the problem that we need to pass a law to make sure everyone doesn't name their son John. <laughs> you know, or yeah. everyone doesn't buy a yellow car. Because if yellow gets too popular, everyone's going to have a yellow car. We won't be able to tell them apart. I mean, there's a natural negative feedback in these. If John gets too popular, people are going to choose Matthew. If yellow gets too popular, people are going to start choosing blue. You know, people when they form yeah. their own companies want to put their own name on it. Well, because that's that's the way that they compete. 
right? Course. I mean, and that's, yes. you know, yeah. When, and that's the thing, when I was designing lighting, that's exactly what we did. That's actually how we built our business was by continually coming up with new looks. Um, sure, you know, they may have been within a certain theme, a, th a certain style that, you know, was popular at the time. Um, but what we did was we took them, we put our own spin on them, we improved, we actually would take products that were sort of down market and we'd make them better. Well, that's how, pro <laughs> that's how progress happens. You have this sort of, yeah. you have this uh, ladder effect Everyone builds on what everyone else did, and yeah, you're in the same theme as you say, you're in the same general area. You're catering to a similar market, but you improve on it, and then they have to improve. There's a ladder effect, and everyone's better off with that, except for the yeah. except for the companies. They have to keep competing. Yeah, I think it's yeah, I think, yeah, that's a lot of it. I think at some at some point, some companies just uh, I think they they just don't want to compete anymore. They they decide to instead of creating they become lobbyists uh, with the government well, this is the thing everyone says patent and copyright are to stimulate innovation and yet the the opposite is what happens you'll have a company they can rest on their laurels because they basically get a monopoly in this area so they don't really have to improve that much anymore because they they can <laughs> stop people from competing with them um, and another related effect is that the effect of copyright and patent especially patent and other government regulations like minimum wage and union laws, um, the FDA, taxes, all these things are expensive, but they're basically noise or they're like a background tax that the bigger companies can afford, right? right. The little companies can't afford them. The little companies can't afford to amass a patent portfolio of 1,000 patents at $20,000 per patent application. Um, mm -hmm. So they have no ammunition or armor to defend themselves from a patent lawsuit against the established industries. So you have these big industries like in the case of smartphones, you'll have um, Samsung and Apple and uh, uh, Android and uh, uh, Windows phones. Motorola. Motorola. But a little company – so they can all sue each other, rattle their sabers, and hit, hit each other back with their, with their patent countersuits and come up with a settlement tax each other a little bit, pass it on to their consumers so you have higher prices and less innovation, mm -hmm. go about their business. So you have like a walled garden of an oligopolistic industry created by government regulation, and so you have less innovation, higher prices, less competition, and barriers to entry to smaller companies that would otherwise be able to compete. Now, and in terms of – so. Just because I know, I know uh, probably people watching this might be familiar with some of these issues already. So I'm wondering about, um, so how are smaller companies like uh, maybe the company you're working with? So if, the, if, these, if these companies can't do these sorts of things, because um, I know Creative Commons licenses have sort of become sort of a, is there like a Creative Commons for patents? No, there's not. Okay. There's actually, um, um, people are working on, innovative ways to break free of the current IP monopoly. I mean, and of course, in an IP-free world, we wouldn't have to worry about this, right? But the thing is, and again, it's it's not companies' choice. They're forced, They're forced almost by so, government so for example, to, to buy into the system, the, right? In the copyright field, um, you had Creative Commons, which emerged, and that has worked fairly well. But the problem is you cannot actually get rid of your copyright. The government automatically gives you a copyright in anything that you – say write down or publish, whether you want it or not, whether you put the copyright notice on it or not, whether you register yeah. it or not. Everyone says, well, why do you copyright your articles if you don't believe in copyright? And I say, well, I don't copyright them. The government copyrights them. 
and oh, they don't even oh. they don't even give me a way to get rid of it. I can do a Creative Commons license and give people permission to do it if they give me credit or something, but there's no way to just get rid of the copyright. I can say it, but it's just not effective. It's no more effective than saying, right now, I hereby get rid of my rights to collect Social Security payments when I'm 65. I mean I can say it, but I still have the legal right to go for it when I'm 65 or whatever. Oh, okay. So you can't get rid of it. So, some, so there is a, a new thing being formed. It's tentatively called the um, – I think it's called a copyright creative copyright trust or something. The, okay. the idea is it's being done by questioncopyright.org. And the idea right. is to allow people that want to release their works completely into the commons to donate it to this sort of trust and say you hold the copyright but you're going to promise that you will never enforce it or something like that. In the patent mm -hmm. field, the closest um, analogy to that so far has been these kind of ad hoc regional or industry specific um, patent defense associations where like the MPEG group or whatever will they'll have a patent pooling arrangement but it's it's really purely defensive and it doesn't work yet I have been mm -hmm. talking with some people brainstorming on a way to um, um, well the idea was sparked by what Twitter did recently Twitter did something unique what they said was they will adopt a pledge where they will acquire patents, but they will only use them defensively. They will never assert it against someone offensively. And the problem is if you just announce that policy, you could change your policy tomorrow. If you want yeah. people to be able to rely on it and to bind yourself, you have to make basically a contract with someone um, that can enforce you to the terms of your deal. So what they did as a first start was they said every inventor in our company, an engineer who is an inventor… We're going to make a deal with them where they have basically a license to, our, to their own patents so they can prevent us from using it offensively later. The problem with that is the inventor might be, um, might be bribed later. I mean if there's a billion-dollar potential patent troll action later using the patent, you could just pay the inventor off. So the <laughs> idea I've, I've, I've been mulling over yeah. is starting a, a foundation that would be a, a patent defensive league foundation. That you – if you're a company that wants to make this pledge, you take your patents, and you do your patents as normal. You apply for patents. You acquire patents, but then you make a deal with this patent defense trust or whatever where you assign them a right to prevent you from using it offensively. Um, mm -hmm. So that way you tie your hands, and you – and then the idea is that you might attract higher quality talent because engineers are getting sick of this patent stuff, and if you tell them, listen… Help us get patents, but we're never going to use it against people. We're not going to try to stop innovation or competition. It's just to protect us and yeah. be sure that you're doing you know, good work. So like the Google pledge, don't be evil, would be really fulfilled by something like this. So, so what – and what did you mean about engineers getting tired of this patent stuff? Like, Because what, what are the issues around it? Are, are engineers creating things or, or just explain sort of uh, – so, you know, so the way it works is in, um, in high-tech industries uh, at medium to large-sized companies, the companies know that they need to acquire patents if only to get an arsenal of patents or a, a portfolio of patents that they can use if they are sued to sue someone back. So that they back down, they rattle their sabers, they come up with a settlement, and then they go about their business. So if yeah. you don't have any patents, you have, you're left defenseless like the smaller companies I mentioned earlier. So these companies yeah. tend to have patent um, uh, uh, policies and programs where they, they try to encourage their engineers, listen, when you're working on this project, if you come up with anything that's potentially patentable, 
you need to submit it to the patent attorney. We're going to file it, and the company's going to pay the fees. But it's got, it takes it takes time away from their normal job, yeah. so you have to give them an incentive. So what they mostly do is they, they agree they have a, a patent um, policy where they 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 give them a bonus. So every time you submit a patent disclosure, which is the initial idea, they might pay mm -hmm. you fifteen hundred dollars or three thousand dollars or five hundred dollars. Yeah. I don't know. And then when the patent is filed, if it goes through the committee and they approve it and the patent attorney files it, you get another $1,500. Um, that way you incentivize engineers to keep sending disclosures and patent ideas up the line so the company gets these patents. Um, right. Cost the company money to pay the engineers, cost the money to pay the attorneys, etc. But then the engineers have an incentive to be thinking about this, to submit ideas, and to cooperate with the patent attorney to get it submitted. But they all know it's bullshit. They all know it's bullshit, and especially like in Silicon Valley, especially in the software and internet area, they know that it's just nothing but a huge, um, uh, uh, completely unnecessary um, waste of everyone's time. All these lawsuits they're getting are hurting their businesses, so they're doing their part to help their companies get patents, but they know that it's completely a waste of money. I mean you have one company spending $10 million on patents, another $10 million on patents. They sue each other. They give the lawyers $10 million. Then they give each other $5 million each to settle, and then they go back to doing what they were doing. So basically they're paying $40 million just to keep competing. Um, oh, but, my but, God. But then the advantage is that the smaller companies can't compete. But the engineers are sick of it. So the idea is that you could attract more talent by saying, join our company. We're not going to play this stupid patent game. We know that it's broken. We're going to get patents because we have to. For defensive uses only, and here's our mm -hmm. pledge, and here's the policy we've adopted to do that. So the idea is that you would get more quality engineers, and you might even get more patent disclosures that way because these guys feel good about it. Then they're like, hey, I'm doing something good for not just my company but for the world because once this patent is out there, no one else can patent it, and it can't be used in a bad way. So that's one technique some companies may be gravitating towards, led by Twitter's um, lead. Yeah, well, yeah, well I, it seemed yeah, because it seems to me like we're sort of getting to the point where um, it's, just, it's just getting ridiculous, you know. It, it's it's just getting too filled. It's sort of like the way that uh, you know the Federal Register has what eighty thousand pages yeah, or something like, like that, it's like, like thirty or forty well, the speed of, of, of volumes of, of books. It's incredible. But, it, but it, you know, it's, it's just it's it, I, don't, I don't know if it would have the ability to shut down everything, but just because there's so many patents out there and these weird ideas. And what I didn't get, there was a we had a talk with Walter Block just a little while ago and somebody was somebody was talking about these issues. And and hey, what about the wheel? What about the gear? Yes. What about I mean, this idea, you know, if I'm a creative person um, and even engineers as well, I mean, if, if an engineer is thinking about something and he comes up with this new idea, or you know, or, or if I'm an author and I write a book, it's everything is based on everything that we've learned. Of course, up of course, that. and, and there's and there's nothing wrong with it. Everyone's gotten this idea that um, if you copy what someone else is doing, you're stealing from them. And of course, copying is not stealing. And of course, copying yeah. is just emulation and competition and learning. And what what in the world is wrong with that? Where would we be if people hadn't learned and copied from each other? And even competed with each other. Um, you asked about yeah. this, um, the, the, all the, the, the morass of legislation. There was a recent study done by a law professor, and I blogged about it on uh, c4sif.org. And she just she used actually conservative. She's not even a radical like like us. She used conservative yeah. estimates um, 
to estimate what would the cost be for the United States software industry, just the software industry, to do a thorough job of investigating the software patents, which is just one fraction of software patents, in the United States alone to hire yeah. the patent attorneys they need to review them every year to make sure that they're aware of what patents there are and that they're not infringing them. And, well, yeah, and, and her estimate was – and it, it's like this, this exponential thing when you get to 40,000 patents or something and all these companies. Her estimate was – and actually her estimate was something in the multiple hundreds of billions, but because she estimated that it would only take a patent attorney 10 minutes to review each patent, and I'm a patent yeah. attorney. I'm telling you that's <laughs> – I'm going to give them 30 minutes, okay? So I'm going to multiply yeah. that by three, and she estimated that the billable hourly rate of these attorneys is $100. That's crazy too. I'm going to go to 300, and even that's conservative. And that would require six million patent attorneys working full time in the U.S. And there's only forty thousand patent attorneys right now, and it would cost two point seven trillion dollars a year just to make sure you're not violating patents. Um, and when the software industry is only worth about two hundred billion dollars a year, so in other words, this is completely. If you really were serious about IP, we would literally – human civilization would would be snuffed out. It's, it's, it, we would die. We would be living like cavemen. Um, so it's, it's totally insane. Um, people that say they're in favor of IP are either self-interested hypocrites or liars, or they don't know what they're talking about, or they're just misanthropes who, who want humanity to die out or something. It's crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, because I know, I know there's this issue around, um, and you were saying pharmaceuticals. There was, it was Switzerland. You said that had no pharmaceutical laws. Yeah, there was like for about a century, Switzerland and I think Italy. Uh, well, Switzerland had no patent laws for a while. Switzerland and the Netherlands actually had no patent laws for about a hundred years, and the uh, okay. was fantastic. But I believe it was um, Italy and um, one other European country had no pharmaceutical patent protection for 100 years. And of course, some of the greatest pharmaceutical companies have come out of Italy, uh, and the research was fine. Uh, it, mm -hmm. if, you, if, if people that are interested in this, they should look at um, uh, chapter 9 of the book, which is online, called Against Intellectual Monopoly by two economists named Boldrin and Levine. It's at againstmonopoly.org. And in chapter 9, they just totally explode the entire myth about the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, oh really? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I mean, they just go through the, the empirical utilitarian case. It's just so many false assumptions um, uh, about it. But even if you don't go through these numbers, if you just think about it in a common sense way, we have an industry that is highly regulated by the state yep. with antitrust law, pro-union law, minimum wage law, taxes, import duties, environmentalist legislation, the FDA alone. Mm -hmm. So it's number one imposing. Hundreds of billions of dollars of cost on this industry, and it's benefiting the, the players that survive because they now have an oligopolistic industry, and they're protected from competition from the people that can't afford these costs, which yeah. reduces output, etc. So you have the government screwing everything up, and then they, they come along and say, well, these companies don't have enough uh, capital to invest in this Viagra drug unless we give them a monopoly… For 17 mm -hmm. years on selling this drug, um, okay. which allows them to sell it for a slightly higher fee for a limited time before they have competition. Wouldn't it be smarter to stop taxing them and stop regulating them and allow competition? <laughs> 
instead of trusting the criminal yeah. agency that is doing everything they can to snuff out innovation and the free market with giving a monopoly well, yeah. grant to make up a little bit of the damage they've done. It's insane. Yeah. yeah, well, I mean, it's the same thing. I mean, it's the same thing with, um, it's the same thing with, uh, I mean, the, the manufacturing industry in the USA and to some extent Canada, right? I mean, it's, it's been dying a slow death, you know, for the, since the 1970s, I'd say. And so it's come to a point where, again, like you said, there's all these pro-union laws, uh, minimum wage laws, all sorts of different things, tack on all the taxes um, and whatnot. And then all of a sudden, you know, and, and we're surprised that these manufacturing industries can't survive without government handouts. You know, <laughs> like it's basically it's they've put the you know, they've put entire sectors well, it's, it's, effectively it's, on welfare. It's the same thing. Right? It's the same thing as welfare. In other words, so the government. Yeah. By their various um, uh, policies over the years, by the by the business cycle, by inflation, by regulations, by minimum wage, they they literally cause uh, unemployment and impoverishment. Right, so they've yes. devastated the black community in the U.S. For example, so you have millions of people that have no prospects. They have horrible education because of government schools. They're not employable. Mm -hmm. The family structure has been ruined, and so they're basically in need and they're desperate. And they turn to welfare, and really, who can blame them? I mean, what? But the government said we have to save these people that we cause to be victims. And then what the government does is they ride in with this military, and they say, if you need a job, come join the military. Yeah. Right. Well, and then uh, you can't quit. It's it's involuntary to quit, and yet they call it a voluntary military when they force people into it just to survive because they impoverish them in the first place. So it, yeah. it's 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 a it's a cycle of codependency that the state foists on us to stay needed. Um, mm. Yeah, and then I, I wanted to sort of sort of touching back on a, uh, a sort of more philosophical idea. So why is intellectual property not property in terms of because uh, I was reading some of your stuff and and exploring these ideas because I mean if we're coming from sort of a you know, natural rights, and yes. we're coming from you know classical liberal point of view. If we're looking at Lockean property rights, right, self ownership, yeah. these sorts of things. Um, why, uh, why are why why does not why does intellectual property not exist so, in the way that it's sort of considered now? So, especially because you're with Mises Canada, the uh, this uh, the, the way to approach it, I believe. Um, is to recognize that the the Austrian, especially the Misesian praxeological understanding of economics is essential to having a sound theory of law and political theory and individual rights. And right. I have found that if you really understand the insights of Mises about praxeology and the structure of human action, it helps to clarify this issue. So okay. if you, to break it down not into too complex or complicated terms, but Human action is what we all engage in, and human action is basically us individuals striving in the world to survive and to accomplish certain ends. But yeah. what that means is you make a choice based upon knowledge that you have to select some kind of means to achieve an end. To, to select a means means to select basically a scarce resource, something in the world that you can use to interfere with other things in the world to – cause what you want to happen that otherwise wouldn't have happened. So mm -hmm. in other words, the structure of human action is a human being looking at what's going to happen if he doesn't do anything, deciding what he yeah. wants to be different, his goal or his end, and understanding the causal laws of nature. 
right? Causality. And okay. selecting means that are causally efficient or efficacious in achieving his end. So for example, if I want if I if I see a future where I'm hungry because I don't have any food and I know that I like fish and I understand a little bit about how reality works, that's knowledge. I can use that knowledge to understand if I make a net and I use that net, which is a scarce resource, I catch a fish and I make a fire, other scarce resources, then I'm going to achieve my end of feeding myself, right? So right. that action has two basic aspects. Number one, using scarce resources in the world. To use a scarce resource, I have to be secure in my right to use it. So mm -hmm. this net, if someone else grabs it from me, I can't use it anymore. So unless we want a society where everyone is physically fighting all the time, we have the war of all against all or a might makes right chaotic society where there's no civilization, no cooperation possible, then we all want there to be secure ownership rights in these scarce resources, these means. That mm -hmm. way at least they can be used productively. So I get to use this net because I found it or I made it or whatever, and I get to keep the fish that I caught. If I don't get to keep it, someone else does, but unless we decide who gets to use it, no one can use it peacefully. There's always going to be fighting over it. So that is the reason for property rights. Property rights help assign one owner to each resource that needs to be used by only one person to be used productively. So we're all in favor of that, at least people that are not misanthropes, people that mm. are in favor of cooperation, society, civilization, the division of labor, peacefulness, etc. But to use the net, I also need to have an understanding of the world of causal laws. I have to understand that fish are useful to me. I have to understand that I enjoy fish. I have to understand um, you know, that if I bake a net, it can catch a fish. These are all under, these are all knowledge about ways of doing things. You can call them recipe, recipes. Recipes, yeah. recipes in economics don't mean making cake. It means a, a, a set of steps that can causally help you achieve what you want to achieve. But yeah. there is no need for me to exclusively own that knowledge. I just have to have the knowledge. Mm -hmm. A thousand people at once can use the knowledge that if I make a net, I can catch a fish and feed myself. They can all use that at once, but they can't use my net at once. So if you understand the role of knowledge and the role of scarce resources in human action, that is knowledge informs or guides action, whereas mm -hmm. scarce resources are employed in action – then you understand why one of them has to be the subject of ownership and property rights, and the other one not only does not but cannot be. In fact, if you try to assign ownership in ideas, um, you actually cannot assign ownership in ideas. So, yeah, yeah, so, yeah. so what you really do is just a disguised way of assigning ownership in other people's property. So for example, if I get the legally recognized right to be the only one who can use a net to catch fish because I'm the first one who thought of it, for example, uh, or because I bribed the king to give me this right, which was the origin of patents, by the way, in these monopoly grants of privilege that had nothing to do with being the first one just because you were a favorite of the crown or he needed to give you a favor. But for whatever reason, the king gives me this right. You're the only one who can make the, uh, the net to catch fish. What that really means is he's giving me a legally enforceable property right in other people's property. He's giving me a veto right, so I have the right now to tell my neighbor, you cannot use your net in the following way. 
And if you do, yeah. I'll hit you over the head or I'll get the king's guys to hit you over the head. <laughs> so really, really, it's IP rights are always a transfer of control of other people's property that they already own to you, which is mm -hmm. what we would call theft or redistribution of wealth or property rights. Well, that's the thing. If, if I take a, an author writes a book, a publisher pushes, publishes it, I purchase, purchase the book. I've got a physical book. I own that book. But the idea is once they enter, once I read and enter the enter my mind, I mean, that's it. Well, you know, and, and, it's like you said, it's, some people try to say, well, you could you could build a version of copyright or a patent based upon some kind of contract. So when when the author or the publisher sells the book to you. They make you agree to certain restrictions on what you can do with it, right? Okay, yeah. Now, the, the problem with that is there's multifold. Number one, even if you do agree to that, that's a private bilateral contract that only binds you. If other people learn of the ideas in the book, they're free to use it. They didn't sign any contract with the author or the publisher. Yeah, and, yeah like if I – so because I exchanged – because uh, I entered into the contract, exchanged money for the book, or exchange, you know, there was some sort of exchange, a contract was entered into, but I leave the book lying around my house and my kid reads it. Or, or, yeah. or, 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 or they just learn it, or, or you tell them. Let's say, yeah. you know, you, you, you get drunk at a party one night and you say, you know, that if you, uh, wouldn't it be cool if there was a guy named Darth Vader who was a. <laughs> and so they get the idea that there's this guy named Darth Vader, and some guy writes a, 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 a does a movie called you know the Further Adventures of Darth Vader, but under yeah. current law he could be stopped because that's a derivative work of the copyright. But you can only justify that if copyright is this property right called an in rem right, good against the world, which you cannot construct based upon contract, as I just explained. The other problem with it is, it's unrealistic. Uh, and probably even illegal to assume that people like you would agree to or should be bound by such contract terms. So for example, if you buy this book, the publisher wants you to agree to what? You can read this book, but you can't tell anyone about it. You can't learn anything <laughs> from it. You can't let it influence your thought. If you write your own novel <laughs> 10 years later, there can't be a whiff of similarity, and if yeah. you do… What's the consequence? You owe them some kind of monetary damages. Now, either it's $10, the cost of the book, or it's a million dollars. If it's $10, yeah. you know, it's trivial, and it's not going to stop piracy. If it's a million dollars, are you really going to buy this book from this insane, psychopathic publisher that says, I'm selling you a $10 book, but in exchange, you have to promise to be liable for a million dollars if you use these ideas at all, if you learn anything from this book? I don't think they're going to get many customers. You're going yeah. to move on to the next publisher with more reasonable terms. So the entire idea of building an IP system from contract is uh, utterly ludicrous. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing is the um, and, and talking about uh, the idea of owning ideas and whatnot, because I know a lot of people have, uh, you know, have sort of come to libertarianism or come to um, these ideas about liberty and capitalism through the works of Ayn Rand. But um, but from what I understand of her and I understand of the of the modern sort of objectivist movement, they have a particular view of of copyright, of intellectual property that that sort of seems at odds with what you have just described. So I don't know how how philosophical you want to get here, but um, I've struggled with trying to unpack the errors and how this arose. 
because you know I was a patent lawyer and I I originally agreed with Rand, but I knew there was something wrong with her theories back let's say in the early '90s, and I yeah. kept trying to find a better argument for it because I assumed that she was right and the Constitution was right that you need some kind of IP. It's a type of property right, and right. I finally figured out, in my opinion, the right way to look at it, which is that it's not a scarce resource, it's not property at all. It's just a government grant of monopoly privilege. But right. the question about how did people get so confused about this, um, I think I finally sorted out um, what happened. I mean back in – I don't know, 600 BC, the uh, – I think they're called the Milesians, the, uh, these two philosophers, uh, famous philosophers, had the idea that there's only a primordial type of stuff in the universe. Now they had the wrong idea about what it was, earth, right. fire, wind, water, but they had the idea that you can never create or destroy – things that exist. You can only combine them and put them together, and that basically is right, and that is the insight that others have had. For example, Mises and Rothbard and, surprise, even Ayn Rand. They all recognize that fundamentally, metaphysically, we do not create new things. All we do is take existing stuff and we make and it. And reform it. We reform it, so we, we, we take it into our ownership. That is, we're the first ones to find it or whatever in the state of nature, and we're socially recognized as the one that has the right to use it. But once you have ownership of this item, this object, then you can use your intellect. You can use physical means. You can use laws of causal nature, your understanding, your labor, your effort, and you can reform it or transform it into mm -hmm. some new shape that's more valuable to you. Um, uh, that's called production. So production is not creating something new. It is transforming existing property into new arrangements. Now, the way I would distinguish this is that in economics, it is true that when you do that, you're creating wealth, but you're not creating new property or new things. You're transforming things into a more valuable configuration. That is something you value more uh, or that is more valuable to your potential customers. And yeah. if well, it's based on subjective preference, subject, yeah. subjective valuation of people yeah. and their utility of how they can use it, etc. So you know, a, a sword is more valuable than an unshaped piece of metal. A statue is more valuable than an unshaped piece of marble, etc. Um, mm -hmm. And you could say you have more wealth now. So it is true that production and creative activity creates more wealth, but all that means is you are rendering your existing property into a more valuable shape. So I believe the mistake was made back in Locke's time. Locke, I think, is fundamentally correct. His argument is this, and is adopted by libertarians and classical liberals and Jefferson and Rand and Rothbard and others. But the way he formulated it had a mistake, I believe. What he said was, we're self-owners. Now, he said this because God owns us and God gives us self-ownership, so really we're not self-owners. We're just temporary uh, custodians of our bodies at God's pleasure, but let's leave the theistic part aside. <laughs> yeah, okay. So we're self-owners, and if you own yourself, which I would say is imprecise, you don't own yourself. Yourself is a legal term, which means your personality. You own your body. Your body's a scarce resource. You're the one that has the right to decide who gets to use your body. You know, who gets to okay. who gets to kiss my body? Whoever I say so. You know, who gets to have yeah. sex with my body? Whoever I say so. If it's someone else's decision, then I'm their slave or their sex toy or whatever, right? Yeah, and hopefully yeah. it's Angelina Jolie who's my owner. But um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, uh, so you own your body, and therefore, said Locke, you own your labor. Right. And therefore, what you mix your labor with, you own that. 
So that's his argument. Now, the problem I think with the argument is number one, labor is just a metaphorical term or a, or a, uh, or a synonym for action. If you own yes. your body, that means that you have the right to decide who gets to do what with it, which means you have right. the right to act with it. Mm -hmm. So the right to act is just a consequence of owning your body. So you don't own your labor any more than you own your actions. That's a redundancy or double counting or a potentially equivocating, confused way of putting it. Um, and furthermore, even if you did own your labor, if you mixed it with something, why does it mean you own the thing you mix it with? Maybe you lost your labor. If I spit in the ocean, I don't own the ocean. I lose my spit, right? So yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then furthermore, I would say you don't need this assumption of Locke that you own your labor to justify owning the things you mix your labor with. What I think is it is true that you own your body and that you're a, you're a homesteading being. That's what we are. We are homesteading agents. So okay. if you find a scarce resource that is unused and unowned and you mix your labor with it, which means you're the first one to put up borders around it and demonstrate that now you're using it and you have the first – sort of demonstrable connection to it, then that is the reason why you are the owner. In other words, you're the owner because you have a better claim to this resource than other people because other people come after you. So they're latecomers. So mm -hmm. if they don't recognize your ownership to it because you came earlier, then they can't claim ownership to it with respect to someone who comes after them. So they're really supporting just this war of all against all or might makes right. If they really believe in property rights, they have to recognize that a person who comes earlier has a better claim than the person who comes later. Otherwise, you could never have secure possession and right to own any good at all. So in other words, you don't need this metaphorical false assumption of the labor idea that Locke had to justify his homesteading principle. And if he had not made that mistake, you would not have had the labor theory of value, which it ultimately ended up infecting uh, Adam Smith and, um, and Karl Marx and, yeah. and yeah. Marxism and communism. And you wouldn't have had this other idea. This is a, there's a related um, mistake that is made. Because people think that you own things that you mix your labor with, they tend to say, well, I mix my labor with – the production of a, a useful idea, so I own that idea too. They don't really ever stop back and say what types of things are ownable in the first place. So it gives rise to this idea that there are three ways – and you'll hear libertarians say this too. There are three ways you can come to own things. Number one, mm -hmm. if you homestead it, you find something unowned in the state of nature. Number two, yeah. by contract, which means a previous owner gives it to you or sells it to you. And number three, by creation or production. But this last category is a, is a false category. It is actually wrong because as I just mentioned in the rearranging stuff, you don't produce something from, from, from nothing. Producing just means rearranging yeah. things you already own. So actually that's an empty category. Well, because production – but that, but that would inform the claim that, um, you know, that a worker – like you said, the labor theory of value informs the claim that workers actually own part of a factory simply and, because they work and therefore there. it's, they, and they therefore it's exploitation when they are employed yes. and their and their and their salary is not enough to pay back the marginal uh, value of whatever they contributed. Well, yeah, exactly. Which is yeah. based upon non-Austrian non economics too. This objective theory of value, which is a non-subjective theory of value, which is also flawed. So this whole area of law. Um, it's based a, a, a area of IP 
is based upon four or five complete fallacious understandings. Um, number one is based upon the labor theory value. It's based upon the labor theory of Locke's homesteading, which is flawed. It's based upon the idea that creation is a source of rights. Um, it's also based upon the idea that you have a property right in the value of your property, uh, which you don't. Um, that's the only way the objectivists justify the idea of, of a reputation. They say you, you, you worked hard to build up this reputation. It has a value to you. Therefore, you own it. Um, but if so you, when you're, you're talking about slander laws and, li and I know liable slander and defamation, that's right, mm -hmm. uh, which is a type yeah. of IP, I believe. I think it's class it should be classified as a type of IP because it's very similar to patent and copyright in its, in its effect and its rationale. Yeah. yeah, well, I was having this discussion with a with a guy who works at another think tank because um, we were sort of talking about the idea because um, here in Ontario, they they put in place um, this thing called the green, um, the green uh, or what is it? They, they put in this green belt across the top of Toronto. Right. And they said that land below this within this green belt can't be used for anything, right? It can't be developed or anything like that. And then he was saying, oh, well, you know, the, my friend who, who owns this land is interested in suing the government because the government caused the value of the land to come down. And the thing is, I mean, I, I do agree. Like, I, I think the government was ridiculous and I think it was, you know, crazy. But at the same time, I said to him, this is the, this is the problem I have with, um, I said, the value of that land was not is not realized until you sell it. Yes. Right. And and it's the same thing with property taxes here in here in Toronto, right? And across the USA, right? We had this huge run up. Uh, we had this huge run up in um, in you know house values because of the bubble, right? The the property bubble that we're in, and the perceived, but theoretically, you know, the Ontario Municipal Board can come along and say, oh well, you know. If you were to sell that house today, it would be worth X. Yeah, yeah. Therefore, you must pay property taxes based on the value yes. that I have. Well, that, well, come well up that, 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 that's a, yet another. Uh, the, I mean, that's another fallacy of this objective idea of value, which the Randians have, by the way. They believe in this intrinsic value because they even talk about how you have property rights in material values that you create. I don't know what a value is in that sense. To me, value is not a noun. It's a verb, right? I, I demonstrate mm. that I prefer or value something by my action. And even Rand recognized this when she defined the act of valuing is when you act to gain and or keep something or value something that you act to gain and or keep. So she she was Misesian basically in her ideas here. But yeah. But the idea of… The property tax taxing you on the value of your property assumes there's this fair market value or this objective, free-floating, independent economic value of your property, which is some cardinal number that can be affected. And of course this is built into the idea of reputation rights and even IP. Um, now I would say the I would say this though. Um, if you if you commit a tort that actually physically harms someone's property, um, which the government is effectively doing by their green their green belt stuff, because I think that's yeah. a type of it's a, it's a type of coercion or aggression, right? Oh, for sure, it absolutely. They're is. they're using tax dollars to do it. They're using the power of the of the, of the state to tell people they can't use this land, etc., which no private company could do. And if an act of aggression has an effect that does lower the value of your property. I think that at that point in time, you could use that as one measure of the damages owed to you because there's nothing else you can do. 
if if I um, you know, if I crash an airplane into your house, and it, it had sentimental paintings and things in it, um, there's no way to provide true restitution. There's no way to undo yes. the action. That's what true justice would be to undo it. So true justice is actually never attainable. So the the only real justice that you could ever attain was to somehow restore the guy to some something he might agree to as being fair. I mean, what else can you do? So if you could rebuild the house, fine. But if you can't yeah. rebuild the house or if it's got sentimental value, if there's things in there that are never attainable, you have to put some dollar value on it. There's just nothing else you can do. Even if you execute yeah. the guy that, that, that hurts your property, it's still not going to give you your property back. So in second best or third best situations, we have no choice but to use uh, unscientific measures of value to try to do some justice to the wronged victim right yeah. but that said this was okay yeah. but but that said if if i own let's say i own a drugstore and across the street someone builds a competing drugstore walmart mm -hmm. walmart moves in town now the value of my enterprise may go down yeah. right but i don't have the right to the value of my enterprise because the value is the willingness of customers to to uh, you know, um, to attend my my business, um, or if on a on a non monetary level, if 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 some good looking smart guy steals my girlfriend from me, and the word steal here is a metaphor, um, <laughs> I I am harmed, but I don't have a cause of action, right? Yeah. I don't have a property right in her just because I use the possessive. Um, well, this is and yeah, and this is the thing is that I and that, that's what I get about. That's what I find so funny when people talk about uh, voluntary transactions being coercive. You know, if if you know if I don't if I don't value um, the iPad for six hundred dollars, I just I simply don't buy it. If I don't buy if I don't value that pair of shoes for a hundred dollars, you know, no private company is forces forcing me to purchase their good or service, right? Which is very different from you know the government essentially, you know. In Ontario, you know, the, we are essentially effectively forced to purchase the healthcare services right. of the right. government yeah. because we have no choice. Right. You know, right. it's it's not as if, um, you know, I have this conversation with people. We talk about things being voluntary, and 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 a lot of times people will actually say, "Well, I, I do want things to be voluntary," and I'm like, "Well, our entire healthcare system is not voluntary in any way, shape, or form, from top to bottom. It's based on force." Yeah, and then they'll right? say, "Well, if you don't like it, get the hell out." Right. Yeah, and then, then, then they sound like these Yahoo conservatives in the country in the U.S. during the Vietnam War. It's like America, love it or leave it, buddy. You know? Yeah, it's like, well, what is that? What yeah, kind of argument nice. is that? Yeah, no, it's it's funny, man. And the so, but then so just to touch back on Rand, just to to sort of close that. So she essentially felt that people were stealing from her if they would repeat her ideas, or yeah. or what? Yeah. How did that happen? Yeah, well, because, um, because I mean, her argument is that. Man is a productive being, and we have to use our rationality to survive. And 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 I agree with all that in a general way. I don't know how specific it is that you can actually use it to do to deduce too many concrete principles. But she basically argued that what we have to do to survive as a man, as a flourishing man, is to be productive. So we have to create what she called material values, and to do that, mm -hmm. you have to be you have to be free, physically free of coercion from others. And she's. She's right about that. I think you do have to be. If you're not free, then we're living in strife and conflict, and we're going to be not living in a, a civilization where cooperation and the division of labor and peace and productivity are possible. 
So right. she's right about all that as far as it goes, but she takes these sort of loosey-goosey, non-rigorous terms a little bit too far. And as yeah. far as she's concerned, you know, one of the things we create are valuable ideas or information. Um, so yeah. you own it. I mean, that's her argument. If you create it, you own it. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's interesting because sometimes I have discussions with some objectivists and it's sort of, I sort of end up asking them if they would support a world government with a monopoly of use of force. Because <laughs> that's sort of, to me, that's sort of the logical end. No, I, I've, got, and, I've gotten them to admit this before. They will, if you push them, they will admit it that ideally we do. See, I almost think they have this neat freak fetish with, 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 with a final, I don't want to say final solution, but a final answer. They hate mm. the idea of there not being a final answer to any dispute. So if you and I have a yeah. dispute, they want there to be a final answer whether it's right or wrong. It just yeah. bugs them that you might have a different result in Albania than you have in Tasmania. You know, yeah. And so, and so they, they, uh, Robert James Bidnato, who used to be, maybe still is a friend of mine. He admitted, yes, theoretically, we want a one-world government. But oh, really? Oh, yeah. I, I'll send you the link. I mean, I've got it. I've got it online. Uh, he, he admitted it in, in public, and others have done this too. But he says, but in the current state of the world, most other countries outside of America and you know are so unobjectivist that it would be much worse. So unfortunately, we can't obtain our ideal because most of the rest of the world is just so unobjectivist. At least America is yeah. 91% objectivist, and we're, we're so heroic, but most of the rest of the world is 10% objectivist. So, Well, it's, and, it's, and it's sort of funny. Um, I mean, it's, it's an interesting discussion because obviously, I mean, I believe in you know, subjective theory of value and subjective preference. But at the same time, I mean, the objective reality exists yes. as far as concerned, Absolutely. Right? You know, the, the desk in front of me is hard. Absolutely. You know gravity if i drop a ball a hundred times it's going to hit the ground you know it's not going to one day it's not going to fly up into space well, as far as we know so far i mean you know <laughs> the austrian theory technically is that that is just causal knowledge and causal knowledge is always contingent in other words uh, uh, you, you can get it to a 99.9 percent .9 level but you never know for sure i mean it could be that our entire uh solar system is passing through a zone of space that has these laws of physics and that there maybe there's another one out there we couldn't detect and we're about to pass into that and things will change it's it's it's, it's logically possible um uh, but uh, by okay. contrast knowledge of human action and teleology is is unassailable we know for certain that we act that could never be falsified or disproved oh yeah because i was i was sort of having a discussion with somebody about or i was looking at the idea of um a priori knowledge. Um, actually, maybe I should maybe I should read some more before I get into that because <laughs> I don't want to. Well, well let, like, let me just since you're talking about objectives, yeah. let, let me just say that I believe that um, there is a large overlap and consistency between Rand's basic thought and basically. By the way, I agree with Rand's four fundamental premises. Um, mm -hmm. So the, the things she gave standing on foot, you know, um, reason, reality, self-interest, and capitalism. I might have a different application yeah. of some of those, but I think she's basically correct. Um, yeah. uh, and I think that those are all actually compatible with the uh, Misesian and Hoppian and even the Kantian uh, framework, at least as Kant is interpreted by people like Hoppe and Mises. Um, well, yeah, because yeah, from what I mean, from what I see. Um, yeah, because from what I see, Rand did incorporate Misesian, you know, the Austrian school of economics into her thoughts. Um, and that's what I was wondering, because because she did not like Kant because of a priori knowledge. Yeah, but, but if, you, if you, I mean, a priori knowledge in the 
Mises was not an idealist like the demonized, Americanized interpretation of Kant is. And to the extent that Rand is correct in describing Kant, I agree with her that he, he is wrong in his idealism, his skepticism. But there is a more realistic interpretation of Kant on the continent, which Mises was more part of and which Hoppe is part of. Uh, and Rothbard uh-huh. and Rothbard's more of an Aristotelian, but uh, that type of Kantianism is perfectly compatible with realism and the reality of the senses and with egoism and with capitalism and self-interest, mm-hmm. etc. Okay. So, for example, if you look at the structure of the a priori arguments, they're the same as Rand's – what she called axioms. So she demonstrated uh-huh. some axioms by self-contradiction. She said, you know… The law of self-contradiction, or the law of the law of uh, identity, just the law that there is something that exists, is self is self-refuting to deny it. That's exactly how the a priori axioms are validated by showing that denying it leads to self-contradiction. So they're just the same but different terminology. The same with subjectivism. Rand hated subjectivism, but by that mm-hmm. she meant. What we would call relativism, I think, or skepticism. Yeah. Well, that's what I call it. I mean, that's what I call it. You know, it's it's uh, when I describe that what you're talking about. I call it yeah, like moral relativism. Yeah, but when that there, but, but, there is no. A, I agree, but what Mises when yeah. Mises says subjectivism, what he means is that value is not a measurable quantity that's objective property of a thing. Value is demonstrated in preference by the subject, which is yeah. exactly what Rand said when she defined what value is. She said a value is that which you act. To gain and or keep, same idea, just different terminology. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah, that sort of cleared up because I, I sort of had that idea because I, I didn't quite understand why Rand, you know, appreciated Mises and there, you know, there was this friendship between them when they were both in New York City. But then I Rand was smart enough to appreciate his substantive brilliance. Um, yeah. I think she actually realized there was just some semantic differences in their approach or the way they laid it out, but it was the same basic idea. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's rare for someone like her to promote Mises instead of, say, Milton Friedman. I mean, she saw something in the Austrian Misesian approach. Um, I would say there's four main problems with with Rand's kind of approach. Number one was this sort of cult of personality, you know, the closed-minded approach that she or maybe her followers have led to. I mean, that's just a that's not a substantive issue, but that's led to some of their attitudes. Um, yeah. Um, and the other one, but the other two, substance, two substantively, number one was her approach on just her whole approach on rights, which led to her IP views, totally inconsistent yep. with some of her other views, and it just led them to a dead end. And uh, also her views on anarchy. I mean, they just make no sense. If you read Atlas Shrugged, um, Galt's Gulch in the end is basically an anarchist utopia. Yeah. There's yeah. no government in Galt's Gulch. So, and she, she, she even admitted that you know the state doesn't have the right to tax. And if the yeah. state yeah. doesn't have the right to tax, how could it be a state, to be honest? I mean, makes no sense. So she was really on the edge of anarchy. And yeah, she just, couldn't quite get she there. She couldn't get there. Um, yeah. Okay, so and then um, – so I've got to – got to wrap this up. Um, so, so what are the sort of um, – the different websites you're running now? So you, you work as a patent person. Um, so okay, I'll, I'll, set... my, my legal practice is at CanceloLaw.com, um, okay. but um, that's uh, just got basic information. But I blog, I blog my libertarian stuff at the Libertarian Standard, which is LibertarianStandard.com. It's a gr- it's a group blog, just very hardcore, uh, Rothbardian, anarcho-Austrian libertarian uh, blog. Mm-hmm. Uh, my IP stuff is at C4SIF 
org. And of course, it's all it all can be found at my main website, which is stephankinsella.com. Okay, cool. Yeah, thank you very much for uh, for hanging out and letting me pick your brain on these uh, issues. I, it's been very enjoyed, and, very enlightening. I hope, <laughs> hope to get up there someday for uh, for your for your events. Yeah, for sure. Well, uh, yeah, just to tell you a little bit about it, um, we're looking at putting together an Austrian Scholars Conference, uh, probably a, a Liberty Fest in November. Uh, maybe <laughs> you'd like to come up with that. And uh, otherwise, yeah, I'd like to. Uh, Encourage everybody to check out your sites and, of course, check out Mises.ca. Um, and thank you very much for your, your time today, Stefan. Thanks a lot. I enjoyed it.